Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm the host on the channel. And today we are pleased to have with us Mr. R.D. Howard. Mr. Howard is a former visiting researcher in King's College, London, and the author of five books on history and international relations. And we t- today we are discussing his latest book, Spying on the Reich, The Cold War Against Germany, published by Oxford University Press. Welcome, Mr. Howard. Uh, yes, hello. Mr. Howard, what is the thesis of your book? Uh, well, the book looks at the attempts to find out more about Nazi Germany, the attempts, that is, that were undertaken by the foreign intelligence services of mainly uh, other European countries, neighboring countries, um, that wants to know more about Hitler, uh, when he came to power in 1933, uh, prior to the outbreak of war in 1939. Um, but it's also looking at Germany after the First World War, um, before Hitler had actually appeared uh, on the uh, horizon um, of the, um, after the First World War. We needed to know, say we, the other foreign countries needed to know a bit more about what sort of threat Germany might possibly pose in the future. Um, so looking at those attempts and also uh, the relationship between the different intelligence services and by extension their governments uh, throughout Europe at the time. Um, the United States obviously does very much come into this, although obviously it was very isolationist. Uh, after the First World War, it was in the background, and uh, a lot of American officials wanted to know equally what was happening inside Germany in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, so uh, <laughs> in a nutshell, that is the thesis of the book. What sources did you use for the book? Well, um, I was able to spend a lot of time in Paris um, and was able to uh, access a lot of the material um, that is in the French archives uh, about the French intelligence services, what sort of things they were doing uh, to, say, keep an eye on Germany, um, but also a lot of first-hand material coming from the British archives in London. Uh, some of which had been relatively overlooked, uh, and that was equally true of the dedicated material. There's a lot of uh, stuff and material there that hasn't been properly looked through. Um, I had some uh, archival material from Denmark, uh, some from Czechoslovakia, uh, although actually those relatively minor countries in that sense, I was relying more on second-hand material, but there's a lot of archival material in the book, uh, which has been, in many cases, translated from the fringe. 
why were British and French relations uh, such that they were characterized at the time as those of between, quote, dear enemies, unquote? Uh, well, um, there's obviously a, a long history of animosity and rivalry between Britain and France. Uh, it goes back thousands of years. Uh, and um, even at the height of war, yeah, the height of war in the First World War, this mistrust and rivalry was being played out, uh, and there was no reason for that to end in the 1930s. Um, even as Hitler became more and more of a threat and a menace throughout the 1930s, the degree of suspicion and rivalry between Britain and France uh, was still paramount, and it probably probably never actually ended at all. I mean, arguably it's still, it's still ongoing today. Um, but it really became uh, secondary, only run about probably in, in the weeks and months running up to the Second World War in September 1939. Um, I mean, the, the, the rivalry between them today is very ingrained, and I don't think um, even Hitler, the threat of Hitler, was strong enough to actually uh, overwhelm it. How good were British and French intelligence about Russo-German relations in the 1920s and early 30s? Uh, about Germany, um, the British and French had very limited information. Uh, the, both countries were both much more concerned mainly by the threat or perceived threat of Bolshevik Russia than Germany. Um, I'm saying that quite impartially, rightly or wrongly. Uh, and their very limited resources were focused more on Bolshevik Russia. Uh, and on that note, their resources in both cases were very scarce, and um, both intelligence services suffered very badly from uh, very low and very poor budgets, um, which reflected in in large part uh, the economic crisis that affected both countries, uh, as well as possibly to great complacency um, towards uh, the threat other than Bolshevism. Uh, that were emanating from Germany. So I, I think both had a great deal of talent, uh, both had some very able officers, but they weren't actually able to get the resources that they needed. And of course, having said that, even in the 1920s, it was still very difficult to get information from Germany because the Weimar Republic and its own intelligence services were able to thwart any uh, efforts uh, to, to infiltrate the country. Uh, and uh, the Germans were able to... Uh, Impose very severe and draconian sentences on anyone who was deemed to be guilty of treason or giving secrets away. So it was a very demanding and arduous task to get information about Germany, even in the 1920s. And obviously, came that, that became much worse in the 1930s. Was there any inkling at all in Paris and London about um, German usage of uh, Russian resources? Uh, for purposes of uh, armament experiments and uh, as well as manufacturing? Uh, in the 1920s, word did leak out that the Germans were using, um, or did have a covert relationship with Russia and were drawing material and training resources, training personnel, that is, in in Russia. Um, that became an open secret probably by around about 1927. Uh, and, of course, there are big reports about it in the newspaper for that reason. Um, that in itself wasn't so much of a concern, it's a question of exactly what was going on, rather than if it was going on, uh, and how much and, and a numbers game really of how many German personnel were actually out there. Um, but the actual existence of that relationship, say, was probably an open secret by, by 1927.
so um yeah it's a very very difficult one because you one hears all these rumors uh in the world of intelligence, obviously, all these rumours going around, but how much actual proof there is of what's happening is a very different thing. So there were certainly rumours going around probably early in 1927, uh, but only some pretty hard facts came out probably uh, they around about uh, towards the end of the 1920s. Now, it's commonplace in the historical literature now, uh, I think particularly of Edward Bennett's books, um, that the Germans uh, were commenced rearming prior to Hitler's coming to power in January 1933, uh, how much, if at all, did the British and the French, or for that matter, the Czech and the Polish intelligence services, know about that uh, rearmament uh, effort beginning in the late 1920s, early 1930s? Uh, well, again, there was a lot of information and a lot of indications coming out that the Germans were undertaking covert uh, rearmament. Um Again, to get hard facts was very difficult, uh, but there were some indications which, if you piece together, make a pretty convincing picture, which you can then highlight to your intelligence chiefs and then to the political chiefs who make a decision about what to do about it. So there were clear indications coming out. Uh, unfortunately, when those were fired to the political chiefs in both Paris and London and elsewhere, there was no political interest or will to actually act upon that. Um, there was probably by the late 1920s, the limit of what could be done because Germany had become so relatively independent after the end of the First World War by this time. Uh, and the political chiefs were very wary about um, their own ability to impose their will, uh, or indeed about the wisdom of doing so for the simple reason, to pick up the point I mentioned earlier on about Bolshevism and communism from Russia, uh, that if you start to impose draconian penalties again on Germany, uh, even 10, 15 years after the First World War, you risked playing into the hands of extremists, and those were communist extremists as well as uh, right-wing extremists, and so it was probably easy just to bury your head in the sand, to use the phrase, and ignore the intelligence indications that were coming out from Germany increasingly from about 1928 onwards. Um, so there were good sources of information um, and reliable ones, which is they create a picture if you put all these pieces or uh, scraps of information together. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the political will to do anything about it uh, was, was limited, and the room for manoeuvre was equally very limited as well. This limit to what could be done over the thought relatively by the late 1920s in, in, in any event. So in essence, MI6 and um, their French equivalent did not have much per, uh, purchase in terms of influence in uh, policy circles in either Whitehall or the Quai d'Orsay. It's very difficult to judge that. I mean, there were obviously individuals within MI6 who had great of influence, political influence. Uh, but for anyone, I and mean, this is true, not just intelligence services, for anyone at all, it is very difficult changing governmental policy because so many things come into account. There are so many competing interests ranging from, for example, the careers of the individuals who make decisions. They want to get re-elected. They want to get promoted. They want to hang on to their seats or whatever, parliamentary seats in this country. Uh, but although the intelligence services would have probably done their best, uh, there are clear limits about what they can do. And this is true of the present day as well. I mean, you look at, for example, the CIA and the Iraq War, or British intelligence in the Iraq War in 2003, Lauren probably didn't want that war at all. But again, there were considerations coming in and the 
elected powers want to go and pursue their own personal agenda. This is the problem with it. So I think it always is difficult for anyone, any foreign or any agency within the government or outside it to change the governmental policy. Um, and that was equally true in the 1920s and 1930s. Uh, in France, we, we don't quite know so much because, uh, again, there were very limited uh, records that were kept by the French cabinet um, about their discussions. Um, but in this country, uh, some of the records cabinet meetings were recorded, and we do know that some of the material was flagged to the um, British cabinet, but that decisions were not taken to act upon them. How good were Czech and Polish intelligence networks in Nazi Germany, and what were their in relations with British and French intelligence? Uh, well, I think all these, or, or a great many of these foreign intelligence services, including the Poles and the Czechs, had um, some very good sources of information. They had uh, fellow nationals who were able to live or able to infiltrate the country because they, for example, had grown up under German rule and spoke the language absolutely perfectly and put in, in any every sense um, very easily assimilated into that country. Um, both countries, however, had the same shortcoming as the British and the French uh, and the Americans of not having any money at a time of economic resources. And again, the rivalry between them was so profound and they, uh, the, the Poles and the Czechs had Again, very long, very bitter relations uh, over things like territorial disputes, and um, the relationship between them was non-existent in that sense, uh, and they had no cooperation at all. Um, the but well, both countries uh, and the others too were regarded with a great deal of suspicion, particularly by the British, uh, because of their perceived links with the Soviet Union. Now, that's, that's obviously true of the Czechs. Um, the Poles, or despite their very inimical, uh, or bad poor relations with the Soviet Union, were nonetheless uh, treated with suspicion uh, because of their um, lack of allegiance. They had no real allegiance with this country, with Britain at all. Um, but the Czechs were regarded with a, with a certain amount of uh, suspicion, uh, even in France, where they had a, a defence pact and where um, the, the French were actually helping the Czechs uh, and had personnel based in Prague, but nonetheless they were still treated with suspicion for that reason. Uh, so again, the sphere of communism is, is really very important and nothing really makes sense about the period unless one almost exaggerates the uh, the degree to which perceptions of everything was shaped by fear of communism. How did Polish intelligence manage to obtain the Enigma machine? Well, um, this was done by the Second Bureau, um, special technicians and scientists within the Second Bureau of the French intelligence services. Um, the, uh, to let me emphasize that we hear a certain amount of, we hear certain stories, there are certain official records. How true those actually are, we don't know. But the official record is that um, the, the Polish intelligence services were able to intercept a machine that was um, sent from one German embassy to another, or from Berlin to, to a German embassy, and they were able to copy it, intercept it and copy it, and then um, uh, send it back to the Germans without the Germans knowing that it had been intercepted. Uh, and that was enough to give them a replica of the machine and 
using their own extraordinary technical skills and some remarkably talented people in Prague, uh, they were able to to make great strides in decrypting the messages that were sent from this machine. How was Czech intelligence duped by German intelligence and perhaps by Russian intelligence in, I'm sorry, I should say Soviet intelligence, in the Tukhachevsky case? Um, yeah, I'm not familiar with that. I'm sorry, you have to remind me what that was. Uh, well, in essence, what occurred was that German intelligence fed to Czech intelligence, sub Rosa, as it were, that uh, Marsha Tukhachevsky was plotting against uh, Soviet power. And obviously, at that point, uh, Stalin used this intelligence uh, to uh, frame Tukhachevsky and subsequently kill him. Um, the Soviets had a record of doing some very clever things and still do. Um, so I, I, I'm not familiar with that case, uh, yeah, but the Soviets certainly had a record of doing some things which, uh, as indeed t is true today, um, is, is, is full of surprises. How important were amateurs and their sources to intelligence on the Third Reich? Uh, it, amateurs will always have a role to play. Um, I mean, intelligence works in such difficult ways. You can talk to anybody and you can get an idea, for example, public attitudes in a particular country. Somebody can pop the joke blocks on the street here in London um, and they can get an idea of what, for example, attitudes are towards a government or towards the monarchy or whatever, towards, for example, Ukraine and, sort of, and the contemporary Russia. Um, so amateur efforts to obtain information or just the views of ordinary individuals always matter in that wider sense. Um, in a more important sense, um, amateur information um, was, or, or amateur networks, let me say, were given a disproportionate importance uh, in this time for the simple reason that the official intelligence services were so overstretched and under-resourced and understaffed, and that created a certain um, space in which these unofficial networks or amateur networks were able to thrive and given a degree of importance that they didn't deserve. Um, so an example would be, for example, uh, an individual called Lord Lloyd, who had all sorts of uh, networks all over, all over the world, um, whose own ability to get old information was actually remarkable, but whose interpretation of the material was probably very dubious. Uh, his actual individual judgment may have been uh, warped by certain prejudices that everybody has, we all have to some degree. Um, and of course, when you have these amateurs being given such importance and filling this lacuna, if you like, um, then of course there's a very high risk that mistakes will be made because those judgments aren't going through official sources and official channels to um, reach the top and reach the people who make decisions upon which those reports, intelligence, so-called intelligence reports, are based. Um, there are quite a few other figures who fit the same role. They weren't actually intelligence officers as such. Um, they were, in that sense, amateurs. They might have been army officers. They might have been uh, politicians or officials, but they weren't actually intelligence-gathering people who had no official training uh, in knowing how to gather these things. So, in that sense, um, yeah, it's a very important part of the story of these amateur networks were able to uh, influence opinion in a way that they shouldn't uh, and um, 
it's potentially dangerous, I think, for too much weight to be given uh, or to be placed upon what they say, and that's equally true today. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Elaborate on that, what was the Z organization? Uh, that was a, it wasn't actually amateur, it was a so-called parallel network. It was a, a British intelligence operation to gather information in Nazi Germany. Um, it was run by individuals who were employed by, very closely linked to uh, British intelligence per se but it had its own independent existence, as far as we know, and its own agents and its own budget. In other words, it was an agency within an agency, almost. Um, and it existed because of the very high-level security inside Nazi Germany. Um, to get around that, or avoid the scrutiny of that um, security apparatus, one way of doing that is to create a, uh, a new network that the Germans would have no knowledge of. Uh, the Germans might be able to, for example, infiltrate the, for example, the radio signals or the uh, way in which uh, or some of the individuals within British intelligence. But if that network in British intelligence doesn't have any connection, it's completely independent of the so-called network or the organization, um, then your chances of getting information from Germany, obviously, uh, without being noticed um, and being found out about, uh, are significantly increased. So the organizations created in the 30s as a way of uh, avoiding German um, espionage or counter-espionage uh, and obtaining information about a, a country that was very difficult to obtain information about. Why were British and French intelligence consistently wrong about the size of the German Luftwaffe? Well, the difficulties of obtaining accurate information about any foreign air force are extremely difficult. Uh, the production of aircraft obviously goes behind or goes on behind closed doors. Uh, it's very difficult to know what type of aircraft they're making. Uh, this is true of any country, um, and what type of aircraft. They're being they're producing uh, what reliability they have, uh, how many uh, trained uh, crew there are for those uh, aircraft, and of course, what if it's a new aircraft? What its actual capacity, true capacity is? So, for the margin, the margin of error there is huge, uh, and you would need individuals at a very high level, um, uh, in other words, people with extremely good close knowledge, uh, to be able to uh, make very sound judgments about what's going on inside that country and of course that's particularly true of Nazi Germany rather than, other, rather than any other country for the simple reason uh, again uh, as we've mentioned 
because of the, the, the high, very high degree of security. Having said that, the, the British and the French had some very good sources of information who did tick that tick that box. They were insiders at a very high level uh, of the Luftwaffe. Uh, they provided the Czechs and the uh, French and the British with some extremely good information. Um, I think in terms of knowing what was going on at a very basic level, the intelligence services were pretty well informed. In terms of knowing exactly how to translate the information that was given to them into uh, what you might call everyday, the everyday uh, reality, so to speak, of what the Luftwaffe was capable of doing is a very different thing that requires a lot of very skilled judgment and knowledge. Um, so in other words, you might have a very good plan of, or very good idea and very good information about how many planes are being produced, and that's exactly what the intelligence services did have, that you wouldn't necessarily know how many machines actually would be in the air at any one given moment, how much of a threat that would then pose to, for example, London and Paris. So to pick up the point you mentioned, that was the reason why at the time of Munich, uh, the Munich conference in uh, 1938, that was the reason why uh, there was such an exaggeration of um, German power. It was precisely for that reason that we weren't able to translate the um, the actual information we had, which is very good, into a, a very close understanding of how that actually would relate to a, a military threat. And again, to pick up the point, it's, it's so difficult to translate one into the other because there are so many different factors coming into play there. Uh, and uh, that is equally true today. Who or what caused the inundation of false information post the Munich Agreement about German aggressive intentions? And what impact did that have on British policy in London? Well, um, there was a great deal of fear about what the Germans could do. Um, they, the British and the French both felt that the Luftwaffe was capable of inflicting huge damage on London uh, or and on Paris, far greater than it was actually capable of doing. Um, so uh, the, that gave a great deal of leverage, or leverage as you say in America, um, about to Hitler about how much pressure he could put on um, the French and the British to get a degree of uh, and to get a settlement that uh, that uh, was obviously very much not what uh, the British wanted and the French wanted and certainly what the Czechs wanted. Um, the reason ultimately for this, as they say, is that the information um, or disproportionate amount of the information was. Uh, or a disproportionate amount of uh, attention, shall I say, was given to people who had no real qualification of uh, or, or qualification for passing judgment about what the Germans were capable of doing, uh, and uh, it was very easy in that sense to exaggerate the importance of it. Um, so, I mean, the, the most obvious example of that of the um, the the um, Americans who. Um, had uh, made certain visits to uh, the American aerodromes and who were given certain um, ideas about what uh, the Germans were capable of doing and that bore no resemblance to the actual reality. Uh, so again, it's so difficult to pass judgment on this sort of thing and it's therefore in that respect very easy to exaggerate the fears of um, uh, the various fears of, of people who are watching from, from overseas. And that's what the Germans were able to do so effectively. Why did Polish intelligence decide in the summer of 1939 
to share the Enigma machine with Paris and London? Uh, well, the essential reason was that uh, they weren't able to make the technical progress that they had previously been making. The Germans had increased the security and sophistication of the Enigma machine. And uh, it was uh, basically impossible for the Poles to continue to make sort of progress and keep track of what the Germans were doing and keep pace with the changes that the Germans were making. They had to work together with the British and French uh, specialist teams, code-breaking teams, to actually uh, have any chance of doing what they wanted to do. Uh, and um, again, I think it's really ultimately no choice in that sense. If you want to sort of work out what your uh, enemies are doing, you just have to, to work together to, to actually uh, to actually do that. So I think there was in that sense uh, no, real, no real choice. Isn't it true to say that there is a point of view which would argue that all of the activity, intelligence activity by Paris and London uh, during this interwar period really doesn't count in, in comparison to the Enigma slash ultimately the Ultra Machine, which if you adhere to the official historian Sir Francis Hinsley, uh, his argument is in volume one of the official history that the Ultra Machine shortened the war for the well, certainly for the British and the Americans, by two to three years. What is, what is your opinion of that type of point of view? Well, it's, it's a very arguable point of view, uh, but it's equally true that any kind of signals intelligence at all can only tell you so much. I mean, it might tell you about which units are in which particular place, uh, where a particular submarine is. In terms of actually getting into the mindset of the people who are putting the leaders uh, and, and putting the strings of power, obviously it's, it's not going to do that. I would have thought there really were very clear limits about what what any machine will tell you in that respect. Um, so I think that, um, it's equally true to say that uh, the story of the people who were trying to judge the intentions of Hitler and his, his chiefs uh, and uh, get an idea of what sort of policies they were going to pursue were in their own way at least as important as the people who cracked the Enigma machine, uh, wonderful that they are, who, uh, who actually... Um, you know, who one hears so much about. Um, so the argument sort of works both ways. But I think there is a very strong um, reaction to some degree against the importance of things like uh, signals intelligence. I mean, so for example, again, a very good example is the 2003 Iraq uh, Iraq war, which obviously wasn't a terribly successful war. Um, the British and the Americans caught up in that together. But Although we had uh, certain information uh, about what Saddam Hussein might have been doing to deploy his armies here and there, or what his so-called uh, weapons of mass destruction may or may not have been, ultimately that didn't really help us, um, or didn't really stop us to get getting into the quagmire that we, both countries, Britain and France, got it. Uh, sorry, Britain and America got into, uh, and um, it, it in that respect had clear limits in understanding what's going on inside Iraq. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? I would argue that uh, the importance of working together um, when there's a perceived threat, uh, in other words, all sorts of countries can work together, not necessarily share every secret, obviously that's not plausible, but have a degree of cooperation with other countries uh, at a time when 
foreign threats may be emerging. Uh, I think that's the most important thing. I think there are occasions when Britain and France or the Czechs and the Poles could totally work together. And that's equally true also of the Soviet Union, which was kept very much uh, apart from the rest of Europe for various reasons at a time when the threat from Hitler was very obviously becoming more prevalent and more unmistakable. Uh, I think these are things that could have been changed. And I think that um, this is equally true in the present day as China becomes more of a threat. I think there, there is a case for lots of different countries to question the degree of uh, animosity or rivalry they might have with other countries in order to work together against or cooperate to a degree which they hadn't considered before um, against these rapidly emerging uh, countries um, that, that pose increasingly great uh, dangers like China. If you don't mind my asking, what is uh, the topic or subject of your next book? Well, I've been researching a sequel to this book, uh, and it's on the intelligence war in the first two years of the Second World War, 1939-41, and the relationship between, again, the British and the French uh, and the Americans before they came into the war, um, although the emphasis is really on Britain and France, um, because the uh, relationship between Britain and America has been so widely discussed, so I'm focusing much more on that. On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Mr. Howard, for being so kind as to speak with us today. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel the New Books Network. Thank you very much, Mr. Howard. Okay, it's my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Take care.